Hey there guys and welcome to the Daily Objective. Today I've got James with me and today we're going to be talking about the BRICS nations and about their declared intent to be peace negotiators in uh, the Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, before that, as usual, we're going to start with some news. So it's day 46 of the war. Um, and the thing which has been dominating the headlines for at least the last 24 hours, if not really a little bit longer, is the proposed uh, hostage deal between Israel and Gaza, which has been kind of supposedly negotiated by Qatar in a rather strange way. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit on the reality show today. So stay tuned for that. And we're going to be talking about the details of the deal, which just been announced in the last few hours on the TRS as well. So stay tuned. Um, just to give you a bit of a rundown, though, I don't want to spoil things, but the deal at the moment is that 53 captives are going to be released in the first phase, and then supposedly 20 more are going to follow that. Um, Israel has agreed to a, a pause in fighting for four days to facilitate this. Um, the deal actually hasn't technically been approved yet, but it seems like it is basically uh, a rubber stamping approval. It basically is going to take effect. Um, it's going to be approved this evening. Um, and it's led to some con controversy in Israel. The religious Zionism party has declared that they aren't going to back it because they view it as a, as a threat to Israeli security. Um, I always think there's something troubling when it's the religious right parties which actually have something sensible to say about these things. But, oh, well, there you go. Um, so I won't go into it too much more, but that those are the details of it, and we'll talk about it on TRS today. So for our main topic, we're talking about the BRICS nations. Um, I think people could probably be forgiven if they didn't really know very much about the BRICS nations, but BRICS is a coalition of um, nations which form the acronym. So it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. I think South Africa was added a little bit later. Um, and this was a kind of coalition of nations basically meant to rival organizations like NATO and form a kind of um, counterbalance to perceived US dominance in international affairs. Um, and actually just, I think in the last year, it's been announced that the nations of Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates are actually going to join from January 2024. So, <clears throat> and Argentina, I think, is is being uh, swept in. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go then. And it's a peculiar coalition, really. It was supposedly initially formed as a way to kind of facilitate investment between these countries, but really is trying to rival geopolitical power and influence and so on. Um, and with the inclusion of these latter countries as well, I think clearly what you can see is the inclusion of enemies which are in basic uh, of nations which are hostile to the United States kind of foreign policy interests. Um, and so Putin has announced that he wants to see BRICS used in such a way that they, they could facilitate a peace deal in Israel. Um, what do you think about that suggestion, James? I think it is wrong to even begin to negotiate with uh, such a person. I mean, I have to go back to a basic objectivist principle. Evil is a parasite. Evil produces nothing. Evil gets us no real values. Uh, any negotiation, any compromise with evil can all, never do anything but harm the good guys. We have nothing to gain ever in this. It is plain what Putin is trying to do. He's trying to and American and NATO leadership when it comes to these kind of things. He doesn't want a U.S.-led Western coalition to be so dominant. He wants uh, to have greater prestige. He wants to uh, form a closer alliance between these uh, unaligned or anti-Western uh, countries 
uh, and any negotiated settlement that he should broker would only get advantage him. So it would there'd be nothing for the West's advantage here. It would seem to me that America and NATO have nothing to gain from it, only the stuff to lose, and even if that's just the increased prestige of Putin. But let's concretize it. Do you honestly think that Putin would uh, broker a deal that would cause Hamas and Hezbollah to unconditionally recognize Israel's right to exist? Do you think that they would negotiate a deal Let's go to Iran, the source of all this problem, a, a, a negotiated deal in which Iran would recognize Israel and America's legitimacy. No, the, any sort of peace deal that he would negotiate wouldn't necessarily, in my mind, have to, for his own interests, include some kind of compromise that allows the conflict to continue, that allows October 7th to continue. Um, you know, it's extraordinary to me that we would even think about this, but we have nothing to gain only stuff to lose from this, even if it's just his prestige. But I cannot imagine the substance of the deal being anything that would actually bring an end to the uh, violence and the conflict. No, that, that's not in his interest. It's not in his interest to have the Arab, any more than it's in Iran's interest, to have the Arab world at peace with Israel. Uh, so there's no way he would uh, even go for such a deal, even in, our, in, the, in the most fevered uh, fantasy imagination of our left of our leftist peacenik friends who think that all we need to do is sit down and compromise. Uh, no, it won't. Iran wouldn't be a party to it. Russia wouldn't be a party to it. The deal could only stink. But walking in the door, I can tell you that only, we have only stuff to lose and only Putin can gain, even if it were just his reputation. So uh, <clears throat> I find it offensive. Of course, I would. I don't think we should have any sort of dealings, negotiation or diplomatic with dictators uh, such as Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Uh, and even these uh, unaligned or semi-aligned and uh, leaning anti-Western countries are only doing it to gang up so that they have some voice of their own against the West. Uh, again, this puts the uh, lie to, uh, to, well, frankly, the entire United Nations as an organization, in my view. Uh, it, is a, it is the embodiment of the principles I'm just talking about here. Compromise with evil forever, continuing the conflict, preserving dictators in place, and uh, the West can only lose from it. Yeah. Um... I think the point you're hitting at is essentially right. And people, if people were to see this news and to welcome it in some way, you should you should be asking, what does Russia stand to gain from uh, from a ceasefire, really, in Israel? It's wrong even to say peace, because you can interpret peace as meaning the destruction of Hamas. He wants just the continuation of the status quo. Um, what does he gain from that? Well, as everybody knows, Russia has been at war with Ukraine, and which has been very much forgotten from the news headlines since the war in Israel has, been, has broken out. And I think undoubtedly, undoubtedly, when Russia, uh, when Putin saw that Hamas had attacked Israel and that Israel was going to retaliate and that this was dominating headlines, he must have thought, oh, good, this is going to oh, be really, yeah, <laughs> this is going to be really useful for me. Right. Um, because, I mean, so, you know, as I was saying, the headlines have been dominated by the news of the hostage deal. Something else that was, you know, in the news headlines, but was just down in the corner of the page I was looking at was that, um, the death toll in Ukraine topping 10,000 people. And that's just a, that's a side story. That's, that's just something that happened today. 10,000 people think about that. I don't, you know, I, I, we, we, it is not proper to just use a number game and cal your calculating machine to decide the morality here. That is always wrong. 
But if you think about the context here, about what Israel gets grief for and what Ukraine is involved in uh, on a daily basis. Now, I understand the ground war has been in something like a stalemate. There have been some gains by the Ukrainians uh, with naval facilities and other facilities, but it's come to a stalemate. But on the other hand, Russia is kind of on its heels. I understand it's lost about half of its military personnel in that conflict. So it, it was a moment when Russia was actually uh, uh, on its heels and uh, it seemed to me the West has an opportunity now to do something about Iran uh, uh, that wouldn't be so, you know, they're so terrified of escalation, expanding the conflict. Well, Iran is eager to expand the conflict, is verbally and actually attacking U.S. interests and so forth, trying to expand the conflict. Uh, but uh, it can be, again, it's the basic principle. What on earth does NATO have to gain from this? What on earth could Israel possibly have to gain from this? Uh, only, only their disadvantage, only the greater prestige of Putin, only the, the strengthening of an anti-Israel, anti-NATO coalition, uh, it seems to me. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, there's, so there's quite a few, where I live in Edinburgh, there's quite a few Ukrainian refugees that were taken in by the Scottish government. And, um, and this is a digression slightly, but I think it, it illustrates the story well. So my partner until recently was working with a fair few of these Ukrainian refugees. Um, and one of them called um, Anna used to be a nurse in Ukraine and was quite, is quite a well-educated person, but was working in this bakery with my partner. And um, Anna's story was very, very sad because she has two children with her and they're living on this basically freighter ship that has been emptied out and the, the refugees are living on. And unlike a lot of the other refugees who are there, she has her husband with her because mo all, most of the men were conscripted. And the reason why she has her husband with her is because he actually, I think he had been in the Ukrainian army before and had lost his arm. So he wasn't conscripted. And um, he basically couldn't find work whilst he's here. So he was basically living on the freighter ship, growing increasingly depressed and feeling, I think, intensely emasculated by the fact that all the other men are back in Ukraine fighting to defend their country. And um, the last time we saw her, that she was crying because... Her husband had announced that he was going to go back to Ukraine, even though he couldn't fight on the front lines. He was going to basically be there in whatever capacity he could. Um, so people who are kind of, you know, believe very strongly about the humanitarian issues in Israel and Gaza should re should realize that the countries which are calling for peace are facilitating the, this humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, of which um, Anna and her family is just a tiny, tiny story. Uh, but that's a that's a right. digression. Um, Precisely. No, Iran has been sending military drones to Russia to help them in the Ukraine war. Uh, yeah. They are the enemy. The enemies over there are the same enemies over here. You know, people were surprised because prior to Ukraine, uh, Putin was trying to get a little warmer towards Israel. And so people were surprised. But that was all a show. Please, people. I mean, don't be taken in by this uh, sort of thing. Putin no more wants a strong, independent, recognized Israel at peace with its neighbors than Iran does. Period. Yeah. I think as well, I guess, BRICS as a phenomenon confuses me to some extent because I can see why they've invited in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE and all that kind of thing. But nations like um, Brazil and India um, being involved in it, like China and well, China I can see being involved, but then also South Africa. That's a peculiar um, allegiance in my mind, and maybe that's that. Actually, I should have a more pessimistic view of those countries. Um, 
because even if it just started, oh, we're just going to have this alliance because we want to attract investment, it's clearly grown beyond that. Um, and what I don't know what interests Brazil, India, and South Africa could view themselves as having in having an ever closer allegiance with Russia and China. Um, you know, perhaps perceived economic interest, but it, they must in some way view Western nations as their enemy in some sense. Precisely uh, right. Um, I, Brazil, I would not trust that government, the current government. <laughs> they are definitely anti-Western. They'd have mm. no, I mean, they're trying to help, I, I think, the current government, just like Venezuela, just like a damn, you know, a half a dozen other governments in this world that would love to see uh, Western economic interests taken down a peg and uh, uh, joining a more powerful alliance with Russia uh, that would challenge uh, the West. It, it's a dream of theirs because I don't think they're ever going to be with that kind of philosophy. They're never going to be the great economic powerhouses of the world. Let me put it that way. On the other hand, they're doing their best and everything they can to West uh, to undermine Western economic uh, interests and political dominance. Uh, that's what they really don't like. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, with America and Britain, you know, uh, sort of leading the charge over here to the extent that we're doing anything good in the West to help uh, Israel. America is basically its only friend. Uh, it, uh, I know Britain is in uh, going through an internal, but then again, the American left is going through an internal crisis as well. And people are having, and there could be a positive hygienic effect of it because people, I think, I'm hearing people for the first time talk about and think through issues and, hey, I didn't realize. So whatever educative effect it can have, I think is good. But it's clear that it's our compromises, our lack of clarity that's opening up this opportunity for these other nations to get together. But you're right. It can only be against Western interests. If you're if you're if you're signing up with Russia here uh, and, you know, uh, the current Brazil government, for example, I don't trust them. You know what they're involved in. It is disappointing, although, again, not terribly surprising, disappointing to see something like India. India should uh, frankly realize that it's uh, uh opposition, for example, to the Islamists in Pakistan, its rivalry with China, should align whatever their own government is, should align them with us. Uh, but uh, that's India seeing its own long-term interest. Again, I'm not sure I can uh, be hopeful that they will even see what's in the Indian government will see what's in their own long-term interests when they're at, when they've got Pakistan and Iran at one side and China at the other. It would seem to me pretty clear where their interests lie. But surprise yeah. or not, they've joined it, and it's got to be anti-Western. Yeah, mm. I see India. I I agree with your confusion about India, in, but and I'm out of out of the loop with Indian politics. I should say, which is perhaps where my confusion comes from. But one of the characterizations of um, Narendra Modi, who's the uh, was it the Indian president, I, I think is the office, um, is that his the party he represents represents a particular brand of kind of Hindu nationalism, um, and thinking about them joining this kind of allegiance, what do they have to gain from? signing up with Russia and China and so on. I would I would have to assume, and I, I'm perfectly open to being wrong about this, that the particular brand of nationalism which he's pursuing, he perceives as being um, at odds with kind of Western globalism, internationalism, something like that. And that that is what he would perceive to have to gain from this. Um, and this, this allegiance of countries is odd. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be over the top, but it, 
in a way, it reminds me of the, um, goodness, what was the name of it? The pact that was made between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. Um, what, do you remember what the name of that was? It's escaping me now. Um, um, me now too, but you know, yeah, but, what was Putin, you remind me too of what Putin's line, one of Putin's lines yesterday, Israel shouldn't do what the Nazis did in Leningrad. Yes. Yeah. When they firebombed Len- wait a minute. So he's casting the is- Israel as the aggressive Nazis, invading <laughs> yeah. Nazis in this case, uh, and comparing it to the, the, the horrific firebombing of Leningrad. Uh, uh, and yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It does very much remind me of the uh, Hitler-Stalin pact, and the name of that escapes me right now as well. And you're uh, saying it's the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Heroes like Mahalo is striking a deal. You know, good guys like that. But what else could happen if it's the Ayatollah and Putin getting together and rounding up the people most friendly to them in the world? Uh, It can't be anything good for us. I can tell you that. Yeah. And yeah. And my ultimate point being that if they were to succeed and essentially take the West out of the picture, these are countries which would instantly start fighting each other because their 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 interests aren't actually aligned. They're in aligned insofar as they're anti-Western. But for them to succeed in what they want, they would have to then eliminate the other. So this is a that that that's why it's similar to Molotov Ribbentrop. You know, I, I I don't mean to be crude about this, but frankly, when the British Empire came to the South India and the Indian subcontinent, Hindus and Muslims that had been at each other's throats for centuries. And then, of course, when it, when Britain left in the 1940s, there had to be the partition in effect because they would go back to being right at each other's throats and look at the rivalry between Pakistan and India unto this day. Uh, no, and among them, in within the Muslim world, are you kidding? Should they ever have their dream and become the dominant force? They would be at each other's throats once more as they, again, as they had been for centuries. Mm. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and it's um, Britain, Britain's influence in India is a very touchy subject in Britain nowadays. Yeah. Um, but that, but I agree with that. I think there's, there is something to be said for the fact that Britain's influence had some positive effects, at least in far as, at least if I'm getting my history right, is that there was the abolition of the caste system and um universal law there was a there was a story once told by uh, a journalist who um went to former places in the british empire and he went to see a kind of local court and someone who was on trial disputed whether he could be tried by this court and the the judge pulled out this old imperial kind of british law book and said no you have we have universal jurisdiction um it's you're they not law they brought an yeah. educational system um, I don't mean to be controversial, but it would, for all the things that Britain did wrong in India, and yeah. there were some terribly wrong things, India was the net beneficiary of the exchange. They gained far more than Great Britain gained from that interaction. I know that's controversial, but let me just put that down right there. Just in terms of bringing uh, a, a uniform uh, uh, rule of law, just in terms of bringing uh, the British educational system to the extent they did to there, they dramatically helped India. Uh, and that should, uh, frankly, I, you know, I'm not a cultural relativist. That's the sort of thing that should brought, provide the foundation for a new modern India, in my view. I know that's terribly unpopular. I know that's not the tribalist collectivist mentality that governs the world that is always anti-imperialist and uh, uh, anti-colonizer. But the fact is that Britain did more to civilize this planet uh, than any country in human history. 
And those of, of those countries like mine, the United States, that have a heritage from the British uh, legal uh, educational system have been the great beneficiaries of it, frankly. Um, well, and we should recognize that that is the foundation. Uh, whatever your cultural thoughts of indigenous people who live about you are, uh, that should be the foundation for modernity looking forward by civilized people, in my yeah. view. No, I, I agree with you. And it's part of the what makes it touchy is that there's, although there are bad things that happen in the British Empire, without doubt. Yes, um, I understand. Yeah, part, part of the part of the conversation are the things that you're mentioning, and that's what makes it so difficult to have a conversation about. Um, we'll I, just read this, do the super chats. So we've got uh, three ninety nine from Jonathan Honig. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And then 99 cents from Bonnie. Um, oh, and Dan is reminding us that South Af the South African Parliament voted to, to suspend diplomatic relations with Israel. Um, that's interesting. That was a piece of bit in the news that I must have missed. I presume that must yeah, have been. I think that's kind of the thing. There's an underlying anti-Israel, anti-Semitic uh, undercurrent in places like Brazil, South Africa, uh, some of these nations at least. I'm not sure that there's much of an anti-Semitic uh, uh, thought in, in India, but on the other hand, I would ask, I would beg India to look at its real geopolitical interests here. Uh, and they really cannot be in aligning themselves with China or the uh, Muslim world. Uh, you should surely see that. Yeah. Dan was actually saying they voted to suspend relations since we've gone live. So that's literally just happened, apparently. Uh, so there you go. Um, yeah. So and we're, we're encroaching on TRS subject area here a little bit. But, but since neither of us are going to be on TRS today, I just want to hear your thoughts on it. How should we proceed with dealing with these countries in the future? Um, because by and large, aside from Russia, which has obviously suffered a lot of sanctions, um, Western leaders try and keep kind of friendly relations going with a lot of these countries. Um, if you think about Joe Biden going to, I think it was at UAE after initially declaring them uh, to be no good and then dancing with them. And then I think he referred to Mohammed bin Salman by a kind of a friendly name when he went and had to see him at the UN. Um, how do we deal with these countries going forward? Because someone who would, um, a kind of pragmatic type who would, believe in real politics and think we should have relations with them would say something like unfortunately our interests are intertangled with theirs um you know without um friendly relations with some of these countries we're going to suffer with energy and um, we're going to suffer economically by cutting off relations with china and so on and so forth um so how do you think we should negotiate our relations with them in the future in the, that serves our interests well, first of all, we should put ourselves in a position of strength where none of those other consequences are consequences. Yeah. Uh, the United States uh, could be a vast producer of energy. We do not need to be energy. The West in no way needs to be energy dependent on the Middle East or Venezuela or Russia to get their uh, 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 petroleum. It's simply unnecessary. And to the extent that we do so, we make ourselves weak and we give them some kind of you know, gives makes this argument even plausible to some people. But even if we couldn't do that, I would say that, that we shouldn't negotiate with these bad guys because we have nothing really in the in the end to gain from them. But no, we should first of all we can and we ought to make ourselves energy independent, economically strong, so that we can turn to them and say, no, we're not going to negotiate with you at all in any way until we get several things. One, a unilateral recognition of the right to, I mean, anything that we're negotiating about Israel, one of the preconditions obviously has to be before you even walk in the door and before we even start negotiation, you have to recognize Israel's right to exist. Now, oh, we're giving up our biggest bargaining chip, right? 
That I'm sorry, but uh, that's the way it's going to be. We will have no trade with you. We will have no negotiations with you. Any private companies or individuals that want to do business with you are doing so at their own risk. They're not going to be protected by the United States government. That's the way we should approach it, frankly. No, we should not be negotiating with any of these people at all whatsoever. Frankly, so long as those hateful, hate-teaching madrasas are teaching hate and racism in Saudi Arabian schools and Pakistani schools, I don't see why we should have anything to do with either government. They're government-sponsored, government-sponsored propaganda against the West, against Israel, against America. Until that stops, you, you, you can't keep calling for our destruction. You can't keep undermining the values that we hold dear and stand for and expect us to negotiate with you at all. A precondition a precondition for no negotiations uh, seems to me would have to be something like that. Mm, for sure. I think Rand made the same point um, in her article responding to Nixon going to China. Um, that he, and I th if I'm recalling the article right, she kind of perceived um, his action would be fun, one, terrible for our long term self interest, but also terrible to the people who viewed America as something ideal. Um, that America was a country which represented the good in the world. And by going and kind of sullying itself by mixing with... Um... It was only in the last meeting with Xi that Biden even brought up the Uyghurs, just to give an example of the long-term impact. But look at how China has economically gained from this compromise that Nixon opened up with the West. We thought that, oh, if they open up economically, there'll be some liberalization that'll happen culturally and politically in the long run. That did not turn out to be the case. All we have done is actually subsidize uh, the People's uh, uh, Republic of China and uh, much to the world's disadvantage, it seems to me. Again, America does not need China. China needs America. China needs trade with the West far more than we need any sort of trade with China, and all we're doing is helping our enemies. Again, we should put ourselves in an economic position where we don't need trade with China. I know they're a vast market. American companies are willing to compromise all of their moral ideals to do business with, whether it's Apple or Nike shoes. They're willing to compromise their uh, values in order to, and their own long-term interest, by the way, uh, in order to do, or the National Basketball League in America, to do business with these people, and it can only hurt in the long run. Any short-term gain is infinite. In fact, it's no value whatever when you think of the long-term damage that this, is that this is causing. For example, look at the relationship between China and Iran. Iran is making money selling oil to China. China needs the oil to fund its new industry because it's got all this wonderful new trade with America and the West. Uh, you know, that is not the correct approach. No. Yeah. I think this is a slight digression, but there's something really disappointing in the last few years, which was seeing Apple getting really involved with the Chinese government in, in being involved with them drafting legislation. Um, obviously, a lot of objectivists defend um, Apple using factories in China and there's nothing I guess per se wrong with that unless you take into the broader context we're talking about but seeing Tim Cook who um, isn't necessarily Steve Jobs but is clearly an, an accomplished remarkable guy yeah. be, sitting down with the Chinese government to negotiate favorable terms in legislation which are, which are then you know at the expense of the Chinese population is a terrible terrible thing or uh, there are agents of China's repression they are yeah. agents of China's repression. And 
I would use an old phrase, they're cutting off their own noses to spite their face. Do they really think that their economic interests are going to be, their unique economic interests are going to be protected uh, by the PRC uh, in the long run? No, they're using them in the short run. You know, I made the, the example the other day about Jews in the Middle Ages being invited in by medieval uh, uh, Christian kings, borrowing money, then expelling them so they don't have to pay the money back, and then inviting the Jews back into the, the what China is doing for to Apple will make that look like a good deal to, for the Jews. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're just going to have to wrap up because the reality show is starting okay, yeah. in two minutes. We talk all day, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got uh, $3 from Jeff Bannister. Thank you very much, Jeff. And then in terms of upcoming shows, obviously the reality show is coming up in two minutes. And we're, we're basically going to be talking about exactly what you and I are talking about now, James, how to stop dealing with dictators. And I think we're, well, we're also going to be talking about the terms of the hostage deal. And then at 7 p.m., we've got the Fountainhead Book Club um, for ARC UK members. Please head over there and have a chat with Antoine about the Fountainhead. And thank you very much for joining me, James. And we'll see you guys uh, tomorrow.